Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Oak City Church. We're glad that you guys have chosen to join us, and we're glad you've chosen to join us online. Um, as I, before I get into my, my uh, message here, I have just a, just a quick word about the election this week. So I voted. Um, I think you should vote. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you that as I thought through and prayed through uh, my options of candidates and, and choosing not to choose a candidate, None of them felt like a big win to me. Uh, just where I am, you may be at a different place with the options that we have, uh, but, you know, but we, we should vote. I, um, a friend of mine texted me Thursday, and he, uh, he said, hey, have you voted? A neighbor. And, um, and I was cooking dinner. I'm like, oh, man, he's going to want to know who, how I voted and get in a conversation. I'm like, I don't want to do this. So I, I was cooking dinner, so I ignored it. But then he texted back a few minutes later, and he's like, because I early voted, and I was thinking about going hunting Tuesday, like, you want to go? And I'm like, I can think of nothing I want to do more on Tuesday than be alone in the woods with a gun. Like, that just seems appropriate for it. So that's my plan for Tuesday. I, um, I will, will say this. Uh, I said it four years ago, and I'm, I'm more convicted. There's a couple things that have happened just over the last five, ten years with me in politics. One is God's exposed that it's an idol for me and just, and just served to divorce me from that in an appropriate way um, of not placing hope in it in, inappropriately. Um, and the other is that in, in a democratic republic, the character of the candidates is a reflection of the character of the people. And, and I think in a reality TV, 24-hour news cycle culture, that's how we've gotten the candidates that we've gotten. And I, the, only, the kingdoms of this world don't have an answer to that. The gospel is the answer to that, and the church has the answer to that. And so we have to get to work. And so wh- whether the candidate you voted for wins Tuesday um, or not, uh, it's not the end of the world, and it's not the salvation of the world. And we, and I hope, and I, um, this is what I'll be thinking about when I'm in a tree stand on Tuesday morning and praying through and, and reading scripture on, uh, God is in charge no matter what happens, and we should hope and rejoice in the fact that God is in charge. And so I'll leave you my thoughts on the election with Proverbs 21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so the Lord is in charge, and we can have confidence and hope in that. And this is not about building a kingdom in this world, but about making his kingdom a reality on earth as it is in heaven. So we're going to finish this series um, it, it's been Peter and Every Man's Guide to Spiritual Formation. We've been going through these six stages of, um, you know, Peter's life as, a, as the track that, that we go on in our spiritual journey. And, and there's a contrast because you leave it in stage six, which is the life of love. There's a real contrast in this message and just what, is, what we're, we're bombarded with constantly when what's going on with our culture right now and what it is to fight for the kingdoms of this world versus what it is to seek out to live in the, in the kingdom of God. And so this is the life of love is where we learn to live out the things that we know to be true, uh, but we have just such a hard time living them out on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. And so I'm going to tell you a, a handful of things, maybe a lot of things that you already know today, but you have a hard time living out and hope to coax us towards those. And I'm going to start 
in a little bit of a cheesy place, but for a reason. There was a song that came out when I was a kid by, I think it's Harry Chapin, called The Cats in the Cradle. How many of you remember this song, The Cats in the Cradle? And so this is why I start here, because everybody knows this song, and everybody knows this song because it's accurate, you know? That song is a story, and the, the cat's in the cradle, and the silver spoon, and the little boy blue, and the man on the moon, when are you coming home, Dad? Well, how's it go? But we'll get together then, son. And so the story of it is then the sun grows up, and when are you coming home, son? I don't know when, Dad, but we'll have a good time then. Do we ever really make time for the things that we know matter the most? You know, and everybody knows that song. Have we gotten better at that in 40 years or worse at that in 40 years? Yeah, probably worse. My kids listen to this song, and I started, um, I st you know, Alexa. So there's always something on, and, and I started paying attention to this. I'm like, oh, this is the same song. And so I thought this probably came out a few months ago. It came out five years ago. That's just where I am with music, and uh, by some group named Lucas Graham, a um, song called Seven Years. Anybody know this song? So when I was seven years old, my mama told me, go make yourself from friends, some friends or you'll be lonely. Once I was, once I was seven years old, that's how once I was seven years old. Um, and then he goes to once I was 11 years old and I got in some trouble, but I wanted to write these songs like my dad. And once I was 20 years old, then I was 20 years old, then he became a rock star. And then he gets to 30 years old, and at 30 years old, he said, most of my boys are with me. So it's like this group that he rose to prominence with. Most of them are with me. Some of them are out, still out seeking glory. And some I had to leave behind. My brother, I'm still sorry. And you can hear the regret and the pain in that. He, he gets on to soon I'll be 60 years old. My daddy got 61. And he says, remember life, and then your life becomes a better one. Remember life. Like, put it in focus, and then your life becomes a better man. I, ma I made a man so happy when I wrote a letter once. Like, international rock star. I made a man happy when I wrote a letter once. It comes down to people. I hope my children come and visit once or twice a month. Soon I'll be 60 years old. Will I think the world is cold, or will I have a lot of children who can warm me? And then he goes back to once I was seven years old. My mama told me, go make yourself some friends, or you'll be lonely. I am... Um, <coughs> I saw this earlier this week. Um, do you have that slide, the E. Stanley Jones one, Daniel? I, um, so this was put up on Twitter by a pastor that I follow. Um, who We'd hang out if we lived in the same town. I really like this guy. But he just put this out. E. Stanley Jones is like the, the uh, he was a missionary to India in the early 1900s, like the Billy Graham of India. And so this is at the end of his life, his declaration about his faith. There are scars on my faith, but underneath those scars, there are no doubts. Christ has me. With the consent of all my being and with the cooperation of all my life, the song I sing is a lit song. I don't know if that's a typo or this guy was way ahead of his time, you know. Not the temporary exuberance of youth that often fades when middle and old age sets in with their disillusionment and cynicism. No, I'm 83, and I am more excited about being a Christian than I was at 18 when I first put my feet upon the way. And this guy, like in that paragraph, kind of goes through the six stages. You know, stage one, the recognition of God. When I first put my feet upon the way, there's the, there's the life of discipleship and the productive life. This guy was a missionary to India. There's stage four, the inward journey in the wall. There's scars. Underneath, there, there's scars on my faith, and there's the temptation towards disillusionment and cynicism, but I didn't, that didn't win. And he went through to stage five, um, and stage five is, is um, you know, the place where I, you come through and 
and uh, you know, you, you start to think um, you're, you're bruised, but you made it through something hard. And then stage six is this life of love where, where things start to make sense, but in a new way. And Lord, that we would make it to this place, that we would get through to a place like that. I am, um, and, and I hear that echoed in this song, you know, in a different way. I was, one of the shows that we've watched during COVID is Alone. Has anybody watched Alone? Uh, so we watched season one. Someone recommended it. Neat show, reality show. They drop these guys on this island in Vancouver. Um, and, and they're far enough apart, they're never going to find each other. And the one that stays the longest wins a half a million dollars. And so they get to bring 10 things with them. You know, so they got minimal supplies. They can't bring like a generator. can't be one of the things, you know. And so they're out there and they got to figure out, they got cameras watching them that they, they position. There's no people with them. And so they're trying to figure out um, shelter and they're trying to figure out fire because they have to boil water so they don't get some bacterial infection that kills them. And they got to figure out how not to get eaten by a bear because they keep talking about how many bears, bears and mountain lions and wolves are on this island. Like they're constantly telling you that. And some guys, like one guy peaced out the first night. He saw a bear and he's like, come get me. There's, they have a sat phone, you know, come get me now, I'm done. Um, and a couple guys made it a few weeks, and four of the ten made it to like a month, and then it's kind of game on. But then after a month alone in the woods, and they figured stuff out, and they can survive, and now it's just an, an endurance thing, you know. And then they start to go a little bit, a little, they get really inside themselves. And they, they, um, they, they're, not, they're not laying in their cot at night or on the ground, they don't have cots, but thinking about, did hey, did I remember to return that email to Joe? You know, like, if we got this money, how would we spend, if we saved up enough to, they're not doing math on when they can buy a beach house. You know, that's not what they're thinking about. What are they thinking about? It's about people. They're thinking, if, can I stand one more day without my people? When it distills down, that's what it is. One guy's like, when all the noise uh, and distractions go away, then I have to deal with myself and who I really am, and how who I really am has affected the relationships with the people around me. One guy is on his second marriage, and he has a son by his first marriage who's older, and he is just lamenting that relationship and wondering how he puts that relationship back together with his son. They want a shower and a hot bed, or a hot bed. They want their own bed and a hot meal, but what brings these grown men to tears isn't a bowl of soup, right? It's people. It's people. That's what it distills down, and that's what stage six, it's where we understand that stuff, and we don't just understand it, but we start to live it out. The priority of loving God and loving the people around us dictates what we do with our time, with our money, and with our hope and our emotions. These are some of the characteristics of stage six, Christ-like living in total obedience to God. And so I think in stage three, we're obedient. In stage two, we're obedient, but there's a little bit of math with it. This is what we're supposed to do, and if we do this, then probably that. Um, but in stage six, you're just living in the moment, and obedience is loving God and loving your neighbor, and you're doing that because they're there. Uh, wisdom gained from life's struggles. Uh, you've trusted God through enough that you aren't rocked as hard by the setbacks. You you know they're going to come, and you anticipate that God's going to work through them. And so, the, you know, the roller coaster doesn't get so low, but it probably gets a little bit higher than it used to. Compassionate, living for others. 
Jesus cared for the sick, the poor, the hungry, the possessed, the lepers, because they were people, not because he was supposed to. And you start doing that, like, routinely. Um, I, I gave a sermon a few months ago where I talked about how Jesus, Jesus seems like he was really bad at time management because he was constantly getting distracted by people and, and letting it happen. And I thought this week about how after a few years in ministry, and this happens to, to all of us in ministries, after a few years, you're like, man, I could get so much done if it weren't for these people because they got problems and stuff that they're always bringing. And then, and then some wise older minister says, hey, that's, that's the ministry. <laughs> the distractions, have you ever learned that yet? The distractions is the ministry. Like that is your life. Um, detachment from things and stress. You don't have to work so hard to justify yourself, to prove your worth and your value because you're so confident in Christ's justification of you and the value assigned to you by him that you're not striving as much. Life underneath or on top. Paul said, I've learned to be content in every circumstance. That's stage six living. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach a, a scene uh, from the life of Jesus, and I, I chose the life of Jesus instead of the life of Peter because I couldn't find a great scene or stage six scene from Peter's life, and also because Jesus, you know, doesn't have, Jesus doesn't have scenes from stage one to stage five because he went straight to stage six because he's Jesus, you know, and so he lives stage six his entire life, and so this is right at the end before he goes to the cross, John chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Um, again, no stage one through five, just stage six. He loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And I think this is key to stage six, is he knew that the Father had given him anything. The Father had given all things into his hands. Uh, he, his, the whole time, knew that he was playing with house money. He came from the Father, he's going back to the Father, and so he just lived this out um, during his life. I, I mentioned a week or two ago about the freedom to live a life without grasping. And that Jesus is never grasping. And that is stage six. Um, I've mentioned this quote that, a, um, that Dallas Willard said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Jesus never seemed like he was in a hurry. And he's been telling the disciples all along, like, the Father's given all things into your hands. Like, he's given you everything that you need. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. You know, look at the flowers. Solomon in all his glory doesn't look half as good as one of those. And those flowers are everywhere and sparrows don't fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. If God cares about birds and plants, surely he's got your back. Um, he says, I'm going to leave and you're going to get the Holy Spirit. And you're going to do greater things than I did, which is mind-blowing, you know. But he's like, relax. God's got this. Your father has this. And you need that to be in stage six. He laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. If you never thought about this passage before, it's quite a scene. You know, there would be a, this would be a routine thing because people's feet got dirty and so they'd, they'd wash feet. There would be a servant to do that. Absent a servant, it would be like, you know, kind of the lowest on the totem pole would do that. 
And so you got the disciples and you have Jesus. And the disciples had just before this been arguing about who is going to be the greatest of the disciples. And so, of course, if they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, then one of them is not going to volunteer to be the least and wash feet. And they're wearing sandals and the streets are full of dirt, not just dirt, but waste. And so they're nasty feet and feet are kind of nasty to begin with. And these are really nasty feet. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterwards you'll understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I feel like this is vintage stage three, I'm in control, Peter. Uh, you're not going to wash my feet, I got this. But, but I think in the background for Peter, this is, the, this is the, oh man, how could I be so stupid moment. Like, we knew someone had to wash feet. No one else was going to do it. I should have just done it. Now Jesus is doing it, and this is embarrassing and awkward for everyone, you know? Like, I imagine Peter throwing a dirty look to, like, Andrew or maybe one you've never heard of, you know, Bartholomew. Like, what's he doing? And so I think Peter's got Jesus washing his feet, and he's looking at Bartholomew like, why did you do this, you know? And then he's like, Jesus, just give me the towel, and I'll wash the feet, okay? Because Bartholomew wouldn't do it. Uh, I just envision him injecting tension into the scene. And behind that, he's thinking, this wouldn't have been a big deal. Like the cat's in the cradle and the whole thing. And I should have just done it and I didn't do it. Um, but he still doesn't get it. Because then I think that's how we live much of our lives. You know, we have the opportunity to live this scene out to the people in our lives, whether they be our family or our roommates or our coworkers or our neighbors or our friends or our enemies. Like, how many times a day or a week do we have a chance just to give somebody a simple blessing or encouragement or to take the lead and to grab the towel first? And we don't. And what gets in our way? And for Jesus, it's not just that it wasn't that big of a deal to wash feet. You know, Jesus wasn't clenching his teeth like, fine, guys, if none of you will do it, I'll do it. Dirty, nasty feet. Give me that towel. You know, gets done. Where's the food? Like, that's not how Jesus did it, right? That's how we would do it. No one's going to do the dishes. Fine, I'll do the dishes again, you people. Uh, Jesus did it because it was the privilege to love his friends to the end and to love them well and he did it because people matter more than pride or comfort or convenience or status so Jesus answers them if I don't wash you you have no share with me Simon Peter said to him Lord not my feet only but also my hands and my head Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to portray him. And that's why he said not all of you are clean. And um, so I think when, when Peter says, you know, not, also, not just my feet, but also my head and my hands, I, for a second I thought, Jesus has to think, Peter, you are a little bit exhausting. But then I think, that, no, that's what I think he thinks about me, and Jesus doesn't think that stuff about us, <laughs> you know. Uh, but he, that's the gospel. You need to be washed by me. Your whole body needs to be washed by me. We need to be washed by Jesus. We cannot save ourselves. 
We are washed in the blood of Jesus. We are healed by his stripes. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. He cleanses us from our sin when we accept that Jesus is Lord, that we needed his sacrifice on the cross, and when we surrender to him. And then we're free from our guilt, and we're free from our shame, and we're free to live the life that we were created to live. And so he says, you need your feet washed because you get dirty. And the best I've understood that is like, you, you need to maintain that with a regular dose of confession and repentance and going to the Lord and saying, oh, I did this and like renewing it or remembering uh, the gospel and being clean. And when he'd washed their feet, he put his outer garment on and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So it is in the big picture, the gospel, and he's washed us from our sin, but it's more than that. On this last night, he wants to bless the people around him. And then he's telling us to, to do to each other what he has done for us. It's an example of how we're supposed to love the people around us. Um, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so he leaves them in this, you know, this last scene before he goes to the cross alone with them with a picture of stage six living. John is the one who records this. It's in the Gospel of John. John is the, is the um, disciple that lived the longest. He went to live in Ephesus and was an elder pastor at the church in Ephesus. They say by tradition he pastored um, the mother of Jesus, Mary. He was, um, they tried to martyr him like the other disciples by pouring boiling oil over him, according to tradition, in the Colosseum, and it didn't it didn't kill him, and a bunch of people became Christians, and they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation, and he wrote these three little letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and when you read those letters, they read like someone who, and this guy's like 90, you know, and so he makes it. He, this is stage six living, like he's deep in stage six. He's E. Stanley Jones, and, and you hear that when he writes. This is from 1st John chapter 4, Beloved. He probably calls everybody that because he, he, like, it flows out of him. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God uh, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, which is the, the, the substitute for us. It's the gospel. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's someone that's absorbed in stage six. And again, it's the gospel is the thing that enables us to love the people around us the way that we were made to. The gospel is like a, you know, like Sharon Harris pours out energy. It's like a nuclear reactor of love that flows out from it. 
And man, our, like again, in this time, this week, our day, the contrast between this and the, the world we occupy and how much we need it. I don't know how many of you follow a site called the Babylon Bee. It's like a Christian satirical site. They had this one this week, and I couldn't, I couldn't help but use it. For the podcast, it says, report lots of yelling at each other is expected to fix things any day now. Because <laughs> uh, that's where we are. And Jesus and John would be like, no, that's not going to do it. Like You just contrast um, between the frustration and the fear that we can feel in our hearts and this overflowing truth of the love that God has for us that he's shown through Christ, of Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he'd come from God and he was going back to God, rose from supper, took the towel and loved them till the end. Paul in Corinthians, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. If I, if I ace stage three, the productive life, have all the gifts and they're exercised but don't love, like I've gotten nowhere. Jesus don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That passage has always struck me a little bit odd because it seems like he's saying, okay, don't be greedy here, but you can be greedy for there. <laughs> and what does that mean? Because treasure is locked in my head in a certain way, and maybe it's because of what I really treasure, you know? And then, I, but I think about, like, what does he treasure? And I've heard someone say that there are two things that will endure, the word of God and people. And surely his treasure is people. And is that what we treasure? Um, when pastor wrote, what's valuable both now and in eternity is what God cares about. Treating people right, forgiveness, loyalty. We're meant to use possessions and love people, not love possessions and use people. And our eternal perspective affects or earthly priorities. What percentage, this is a hard question, but the whole series, I've said that these stages, you're kind of in and out of them, and they're, they're a, a guide and a framework, but not a perfect one. What percentage of your life do you think you're living in stage six? You know, sometimes I think I really get this, and other times I, I don't. Uh, you know, sometimes I know that just being alone with the Lord is enough. Like, is it? Um, and, and making a way to that place uh, where the distractions are gone and it's me and, me and the Lord, you know? And similarly with people, um, just the simple playing games with my kids, playing cards with my daughter, you know, which could feel like a waste of time, but feels like the greatest thing ever, much of the time. Coaching my uh, my son's team, having dinner with my wife where there's no, we just can talk about whatever, but there's not like an agenda to it. Um, and it's just time together. Having um, breakfast with my dad or lately watching a game with my mom, just people. I mentioned a few years ago, I mentioned this when we went, we drove across country. We ended up at a cabin in Montana outside of Yellowstone. And there were a couple afternoons we were just in the house. There's no, no place to be, nothing to do. 
um, the boys and I were playing games. My wife and my daughter were reading books. And, and I pointed this out to them, but like that's, that's like a heaven on earth to me. Um, and that's the kingdom of Jeff, you know? <laughs> and, and soon enough, they're going to go out and have to make their own kingdoms, and I trust that they'll surrender their kingdoms. They'll trust him enough to surrender their kingdoms to him. But are those the things that mean the most? I mean, it's satisfying to finish a big project at work, and that can be holy. You know, that can be worship. It's satisfying to achieve a financial goal, which can also be worship. But love is what matters the most. A few years ago, I got into, um, I read a few books on near-death experiences and, like, comparing, a guy wrote, a pastor wrote a book about how they compare the Bible and just a few of them. And, and what you, what people, and I, I'm not, don't want to make too much of those, but what people sense is an over, they don't, they don't have a sense of the, the value of all their accomplishments in life. They don't have a sense of like how their house was so great or their living room was set up just perfectly. You know what I mean? Their sense is overwhelming love and acceptance because when it distills down, that's what matters. And once you've walked with Jesus for a while or, or just, I mean, I think people, in, we intuitively sense this, but it's like it's there, but it's hard to get those things that we know matter so much to satisfy the way that they're supposed to satisfy because it does seem like like life in the world tells us those things aren't as valuable as they, they ought to be. Like there's a bucket that needs to be filled up and that stuff is in it, but it's almost like it doesn't count. Like we take it for granted. I think stage six is when you stop taking it for granted and you weigh it the way that it's supposed to. The last six, seven months for me, COVID, you know, and just having too much time um, and, and, you know, some of the things that we fill that bucket up with that don't mean anything and having no access to them. Um, we, we just did this whole 30 thing again, which is like a fast, you know, but you realize how much you use food to satisfy yourself. And when there were no sports, your team or Amazon, like the next thing I can buy, they can they can fill that up, and, it, and it's saying, no, no, you don't need all that stuff because he's really given you everything that you need. Uh, there's a few folks, probably more from a distance, that I follow that I think, man, they're stage six folks. So I, there's a pastor in Nashville that I mention from time to time. He's the guy that did the, um, their mantra for their church was, I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright, and anybody can get in on this, like, their baseline expression of the gospel. He put this tweet out this week on social media, and I love this. He said, Dear Christians in the USA, if you vote the wrong way on Tuesday and contribute to our nation's troubles and even her decline, I have just one thing to say to you. Now you expect what's going to come after that, you know, like he's just going to let them have it. And I have no idea how, how this guy's going to vote. I have just one thing to say to you. I love you. It's a sacred privilege to, privilege to be your brother in Christ now and forever, and I wish I could hug you. <laughs> this guy's in his early 70s. Like, that's what I want to be uh, when I get to that age, or now. Um, there's another guy, uh, a guy that was a, a Christian musician years ago, and he passed away in his, his 40s, but he just lived in a different place, you know. He, he has a quote. He says, some of you people are so worried about how you're going to do something great for God. Well, I tell you, forget it. Mother Teresa said, there are no great things done for God, only small things done with great love. I think that's, and this guy was famous. He had like 
um, the, you know, the, the Dove Award, I don't know if the Dove Awards are still around. They were like the Christian version of the Grammys. He won like nine of them. One year he went to the Dove Award ceremony and he just thought the whole thing was a little pretentious. So what he did might have been a little pretentious, but he went in the back, he got on like a server thing and then just went behind the deal and started serving <laughs> dinner to everybody because he thought the whole thing was ridiculous. <laughs> like he just lived in a different place. And I think he made it to the point of knowing what really matters. There's no great things done for God, only small things done with great love. So stop worrying about what you're going to do that God's going to be really knocked out by. Remember, he created the whole world in six days. You're going to have a rough time impressing him. How much, how much do your people matter to you? How much um, value do you assign to your relationship with the Lord? When you, uh, when you think about like the highlight of your weekend or the highlight of your week or your month or this COVID period, is it, um, is it people related? Is it relational? Or is it an accomplishment? Or is it an acquisition? Um, an achievement? When you put your head down on the pillow at night and work through how your life is going, you know, or you wake up at four o'clock in the morning and think about how your life is going, do the quality of your relationships in the, the way that you love God and weigh people, do they weigh the right amount in that equation? Or do you pretty easily dismiss them for the concerns of the day? Do you treasure things the same way that God treasures them? And, it, and if it is people, do they know it? Do they know the weight that they carry in the way that you treasure them? I'd ask you that, and I'd ask you this, in the, in the way that Jesus was washing their feet and say, you know, if your body's been clean, then just your feet need to be cleaned. Are your, are your feet clean? And so what I mean by that is, do you know, and I think you have to like intentionally dwell on this, that you are loved. That you are loved. Have you washed off the, the subtle buildup through confession and through repentance and saying, oh God, that and this and you know this and all those things and Lord, I'm sorry and I repent of those things and be open to receive the love that he has for you or is this subtle buildup of he must be disappointed in me. He must be exhausted with me. Have you washed that off? Let him wash that off. So you can feel again the joy of the gospel. We'll leave with, um, with one last verse from 1 John 4. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. I'm going to ask... Um, Jake and John and Katie to come back up. And I'm going to ask you that are here, we've got um, these communion cups, and if you have surrendered to Christ and who he is and what he's done for you to take off uh, the, the top bit there and pull out this wafer, and we are um, going to, to um, partake of this together.
as we remember the body of Christ that's been broken for us. And then I'll ask you to open the cup. And um, as Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, we remember the blood of Christ that has been shed for us. Father, I pray, Lord, that Oh, that we would be people that overflow with love. That like E. Stanley Jones and like Ray and like Rich Mullins, Lord, we would get what matters and what doesn't. That we would have the confidence that you have given us everything that we need, that you are in control. That we would never think that we've outgrown the gospel but we would let you wash our feet God of the sins that beset us we just can't seem to get past Lord and know that while we were yet sinners you died for us you love us you are not disappointed in us. You are not exhausted by us. You delight in us. You rejoice in us as your children. If we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, know how to love our children, how much more does our Father in heaven know how to love us? May we walk out of here today loved. Knowing what matters most is the love that you have for us. And because of that, overflowing with love for each other. And may that make a difference in the world around us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.